morning. Are you ready? That sounded half-hearted. Are you awake? Are you struggling to get over the wedding last night? So many of us are. What a fabulous time that was. And pray for Ian and Bethany. They'll have a blessed first week together. And for the Smith family and the Long family, God bless you. You guys have worked so hard over the last few months preparing for this, probably the last year or so. Um, But uh, the reception yesterday was wonderful, just absolutely wonderful. Thank you for all your hard work. I know it wasn't just for your families, it was for the body of Christ, and we were blessed. So praise God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for that time yesterday. Thank you for the very evident and, and clear explanation that every wedding, whether people know it or not, is is a picture of Christ's love for his church. Every time, even when an unbeliever couple gets married, they don't know it, but they are evidencing the love of Christ for his church. And so we praise you for that. We ask you now, Father, you who love the church as you do, would you speak to us? Would you speak to us tenderly and truthfully and give us correction where we need it, protect us from error, because we always need it, Be glorified in this hour together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Returning now to Paul's discussion in Philippians chapter 3 on sanctification. And you remember about sanctification, if that's a new term for you, we're just talking about Christian growth. Salvation, you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ savingly. You're on your way to heaven, and now what? Uh, Paul's answering that question. Now what? What do we do? And his answer is sanctification, or Christian growth, or the pursuit of holiness. Any number of terms could describe it. And we're reminded of the great, that the great apostle did not view his own role in Christian growth as a passive spectator. He didn't see himself in the process of his own sanctification as a passive spectator. Rather, he saw himself as a committed athlete striving to win the prize, not to earn his salvation. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about knowing Christ and becoming like Christ. In fact, so worthy was that prize, at the end of his race, Jesus himself taught that it makes perfect business sense to sell everything you have to obtain it. Get rid of everything that that slows you down or weighs you back from achieving all of the knowledge, the personal experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ and whatever it means that you become like him in every practical way. Sell everything to get that. Because if you get that, it's worth 10,000 times more than everything you have. And this was Paul's perspective He wanted to know Christ. What could be more valuable? What could be so valuable that one would be willing to give up his social status, his academic achievements, his religious attainments, his personal reputation to get it? What treasure could be so priceless that one would gladly risk becoming the enemy of his own people in order to own it? Only this, the privilege of knowing Christ and becoming like him. Now, I don't know about you, but I found uh, last week's message both challenging and correcting and and encouraging. Uh, You may not know this, but I don't preach to you exclusively. I, I preach to myself when I'm up here, and I'm surprised at some of the things the Lord has me say to myself while I'm up here. And, uh... Things I don't plan on my notes, and I wonder, Lord, were you wanting that for me or for them or what? But I was both encouraged and challenged by the text and the message last week. Encouraged because it reminded me that, that God is more concerned about my direction than my perfection. He knows our frame, that we are but dust. He's not surprised when we fail, nor is he disappointed. He can be grieved, yes, it's, the spirit can be grieved, but he loves us. We are his sons and daughters. He knows how weak we are. He understands human frailty because Jesus experienced it fully, yet without sin. He's not surprised or disappointed that I'm not further along than I am. 
The Apostle Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. Whatever you are. What was Paul? Paul was a Pharisee. He was complicitous in murder. And, and now that he's a Christian, he probably wish he could erase all of that. And his conclusion, I am what I am by the grace of God. This is, this is where I am. The reality is, this is where I am right now. And wherever I am right now, it is by the grace of God. Uh, that's encouraging. At the same time, however, it was also, I was also challenged by Paul's relentless pers- pursuit of spiritual perfection. Yes, it's true that this side of heaven, none of us will attain perfection. We'll never be in complete knowledge of Christ or become perfectly like Christ in every way. But that didn't inhibit Paul's determination to strive for it, just the same. And he did it with all his might, knowing that he would never attain it here on earth. But it was worthy to pursue it. Because the more you grow, the more pleasure you have in the Lord Jesus Christ, the more he's glorified, the more you become holy in his sight. Of course, we are already holy in his sight through Jesus Christ. But we become more holy. We become more like him. And so that in itself was worth striving for. On the one hand, he confessed, look, verse 12, it's not that I've already obtained or have come, become perfect. Again, verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. This is Philippians 3, right? Nevertheless, verse 12, I press on to make it my own. And verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize. What was the prize? Knowing Christ and becoming like him. That's what Christian growth is about. That's sanctification. No sacrifice was too large for the Apostle Paul. He understood that to sacrifice everything and receive the prize of knowing Christ would be no sacrifice at all. It would be gain. And then to live is Christ, and that's wonderful, but to die is even more gain. Listen, beloved, it's a wonderful gift to be able to rest in the reality that every modicum of righteousness I possess or ever have or ever will, or ever will need, comes to me as a gift of God through Jesus Christ, and it is free. Oh, the freedom. Oh, the liberty that flows from the mighty torrent of living water that comes from the deep well of Scripture. You should revel in that. You should revel in that every morning. If you feel a little self-righteous, Go back to the cross. Go back to the righteousness of Christ. If you feel weighed down by sin, fly to the cross. Fly to the righteousness of Christ. It is yours by grace, through faith alone. But we must never, ever, 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 ever use that as an excuse for spiritual laziness and passivity. Paul does not allow it. Rather, we find him saying things like, Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation. 1 Corinthians 9, run in such a way that you may win. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. 2 Timothy 2.6, the hard-working farmer is the first to share the crops. Ephesians 4.22, put off your former manner of life. Uh, That takes work. Your old habits... It's a different sermon. Okay, keep moving. (laughs) Colossians 3.12, put on compassion, meekness, humility. Colossians 3.14, put on love. And Peter will say, make every effort, 2 Peter 1.5. And this, beloved, is only a sampling the kind of language that Paul and the other apostles used, and not, not even to mention Jesus. And this is, this is merely a, a taste. Of course, it's always appropriate to remind one another that we work out our salvation. We don't work for our salvation. Nevertheless, the working out of our salvation should be a kind of committed personal discipline that can only be likened to an athlete striving for the ultimate prize. Does that describe your personal pursuit 
of a deeper knowledge of Christ. Now, we're not talking about a, a different class of Christian. We're not talking about the old Keswick version of the, the deeper life. We're talking about your knowledge of Christ. Are you pursuing that? Or are you hoping it'll just descend upon you when you come to church? Or when you're listening to your favorite preacher on the radio? And, and that's wonderful. We, we should do that. We should saturate our minds with the truth. Is it an accurate picture of your proactive pursuit of becoming like Christ, this, in, this race that Paul is envisioning? This is what sanctification or Christian growth is about. It's not merely learning facts about the Bible. It's not about mastering certain doctrines, although you should. Now, all theology should lead to doxology, and certainly you can't grow without it. It's not about mastering your favorite disciplines or, or, or doctrines. It's about discovering in God's word and even in God's world wonderful and glorious things about Jesus and striving to become like him, striving to know him, disciplining yourself. And disciplining yourself can be something like this. It can be disciplining yourself to read and memorize and meditate on scripture. It can also be Disciplining yourself when you're there shortly after a baby is born to not only talk about how cute the baby is, but how wonderful God is to give us babies. You can think about that in the middle of the night, men, while you're trying to get the baby back to sleep. And women, and you're like going to pull your hair out. I've been there. We had seven. The last was two at a time. That was like two fists full of hair out. Remind yourself, this is grace to you. God has given you a child, and he's giving you this struggle right now so that you'll learn to lean more on him, to know him, and the power of his resurrection even in that moment. This is Paul's description. All of this is Paul's description of his own sanctification, how he pursued his own sanctification. But then, in our text for this morning, he offers a prescription, not just a description, but now a prescription for how to do it. Now, this is not a treatise on on sanctification. He's not going to tell us everything that we can learn from a systematic study of sanctification in the Word of God, but he does give us three points of counsel, generally, because these three things are on his mind when he writes this. So let's talk about counsel for Christian growth. I see three themes in Paul's counsel here. First, I think Paul is telling us, stay true to what you have learned. You want to grow in Christ? Listen, you've been taught well. He's talking to the Philippians. You've been taught well. You've been taught well. In Calvary Bible Church, you've been taught well. Uh, and not just here in worship service, not just by me, but by Keith and the elders and the guys who are down the hall teaching every Sunday morning. And children, you've been really taught well. You're growing up in a Christian home probably, and, um, and you're learning what it means to know Christ and love Christ. And, and, and that's wonderful. Um, you have been taught well. Now, focus on staying on that path. There's so much more down this field than what you have learned and experienced already. There's so much more beyond Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. <clears throat> you may know that much from the Bible, but there's 10,000 more. So after describing his view of sanctification, Paul says, verse 15, that every mature believer should have this same mind or attitude. Look at verses 15 and 16. He writes, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if, any, and if and in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. Don't you love Paul's boldness? Listen, you, you might not agree with me about how you should pursue sanctification. That's okay. God will take care of that. You'll see it my way eventually. <laughs> when we get to heaven, you'll know I was right. <clears throat> Every mature believer should have this mind or attitude about the subject. On the one hand, they resist the pressure to fall into legalism. Now, Paul is imagining you're on this line. You've got, a, you got, a, you've got this lane that you're in. And you also have a lane to the right, and you have a lane to the left. And in the lane to the right, let me switch that for you. This is right for you, right? In the lane on the right side is legalism. 
And as you're running the race, it's real easy to step into legalism. It's real easy. And this is what the Judaizers were selling. They were saying, listen, it's, uh, it's not just Jesus. Jesus is great. Jesus is the Messiah, no doubt. But you also need circumcision. You also need the other religious rites. And if you don't have them, then you're not a true Jew. And if you're not a true Jew, then you are no son of God. And so you've got to add things. The idea that the gospel of Jesus Christ is incomplete without circumcision or the Old Testament ceremonialism. And for you and I, that means guard our hearts from any form of self-righteousness. We are never so good. We are never so good that we can earn God's grace or God's favor. And we are never so bad that we are beyond the reach of God's immeasurable grace. It is grace from first to last. Every aspect of your salvation and sanctification, if you make progress at all, it will only be because of God's grace. And that brings us to another danger. Not only should we avoid legalism, and by the way, I'm not just inserting these into the text. It's the things that Paul is talking about. I just don't want to re-preach those old sermons. Um, the second thing, not only should we avoid legalism, but we should also avoid the error of antinomianism. Antinomianism. Anti means not or no. It's a negative prefix. Uh, nomianism. The ism tells you it's kind of a category of, of thinking. Namas means law. So it is no law. You believe in no law. Antinomianism believes that the law of God has no place in the Christian life. God doesn't expect you to work hard or even obey. As long as you prayed the prayer, as long as you're a true Christian, the idea is that since we are in Christ, God views us as completely holy, and therefore it doesn't matter what we do. Now, the first part of that is true. God views us as completely holy, but the second premise is false. As long as I'm a Christian, my behavior is irrelevant, they would say. Ironically, and this is also called perfectionism. It's called perfectionism because it's thought that in Christ, God counts you as perfect, which is true. And there is nothing one can do to contribute to that, which is also true. But it is wrong-headed to conflate sanctification with justification. Because in justification, God declares you righteous. He declared this. Now just hang with me if, uh, if this is kind of new to you or if it's if it's too old to you, just hold in, hold on here. But we got to make this distinction. Justification, in justification, God declares us holy based on the merits of Christ. In sanctification, however, God makes us holy. He makes us more like Christ as, by God's design, we cooperate with the Spirit in pursuing the knowledge of Christ and the likeness of Christ. Now, could God have just zapped us on the day that we believed and we became holy? Sure he could have. He, I mean, he's God. He spoke and the worlds came into existence. Could he zap us and make us holy? Yes. Um, it is apparent that he has chosen not to do it that way. It is apparent and, and clear from Scripture that if God is not at work in us, we will not ever grow or bear fruit. Now, not to wear out this illustration, but I'll tell you again, just because I know there are people here who haven't heard this. Uh, one time my parents, who were in Florida, moved up here. We were pulling together a swing set for the kids, and my son Josh wanted to help. And he wanted to, my, my father said, Josh, come over here, you can screw this, this lag bolt in, and all you got to do is turn this handle, and Joshua's about, I don't know, five or six. Maybe every time I tell the story, he's a different age. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but he's pretty, pretty young. And so big, long handle, and Josh grabs it, and he's straining with all his might, and he's not turning. He's not helping. He so badly wanted to help. And he's, he's he got it in both hands, and he's leaning on it. He's pushing on it and, he's, and it, and it's not turning. Is he working? Yes. Is it fruitful labor? Nope. 
And my father reaches down and says, Josh, uh, give me a second here. Let me grab hold of the end of the wrench. Okay, now, do what you were doing before. Push as hard as you can. And my dad, hardly even with two fingers, grabbed the end of it and started pushing. And that thing started turning. Josh just lit up. I mean, is he working? Yeah. <laughs> but is his work an independent work by which he himself is going to drive this leg screw in. Not a chance. And this is what Paul is saying in chapter 2 when he says, work out your salvation, or that part of salvation that we call sanctification. Work out your sanctification in fear and trembling, knowing that God is at work in you. God is the one with the real power. He's the one who's turning the wrench. If you make any progress at all, it's by his grace. He's doing the work. But so are you. You're straining with all your might. This is God's design. This is how Paul saw it. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be using this kind of language. And so Paul is no perfectionist. And perfectionism says, because I have been declared righteous, all of my work doesn't matter. No, 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 no. Because you have been declared righteous, your work does matter. It will produce fruit because God is at work in you. So Paul's no perfectionist and he's no legalist. He boldly declared that he had not yet obtained full knowledge, so that's obviously not perfection. He had his life and character become perfectly like Christ. That hadn't happened yet. But toward the end, he strained forward. All the way toward the end, he strained forward, pressing on regardless of past failures or successes. He resisted the urge to become sluggish in his race or sit down on the track. He ran to win the prize. This must be every believer's primary focus. And, and can we just skip to verse 17 where he says this, Brothers, join in imitating me. The word imitate here comes from a Greek word, from which we get the word mimic. Look at me and do what I do. If I raise my hand, raise your hand. If I put my hand down, put your hand down. If I smile, you smile. If I frown, you frown. Imitate me in my pursuit of sanctification. This must be every believer's focus. This is, this is what we're called to do. Or, or, or Paul said to Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. What do you mean godliness? You talking about salvation? Nope. You're talking about sanctification. And the question for us is, are we disciplined? Do we discipline ourselves? Do we invite others to discipline us? Paul's words here may be an indication that the church in Philippi had become somewhat slack in their pursuit of the prize. Perhaps they had become lukewarm in their love for Christ, their desire to know and become like Christ. Perhaps it had, it had lost its fuel. It may be that some who started out so well had slowed on the track to an easygoing stroll on, in the race, having lost their motivation to finish well. When I preached through 1 Corinthians and got to chapter 9, I talked about the fact he's, he's given the race illustration again. He's saying run to win. And I remembered when I was, uh, when I was a kid in high school, I was on, uh, in, I was on the, the gym class track team, right? <laughs> And uh, there was always one or two guys who were trying to break records and, and move forward. The rest of us, we were running in a pack. We called it the track pack. And we weren't running really hard. We were running well enough to get a passing grade because that's all we cared about. If somebody got tired, we all sat down. <laughs> if we felt like we were pushing the limits, we all got back up, you know. That's what we do in church, right? Nobody, nobody wants to get too far out ahead. You get criticism. No one wants to get too far behind or somebody's going to say something. It's embarrassing. And so just, where's the pack of this church? Where, how fast are you running? And I'm going to join you, because that's comfy. And it wasn't Paul. Paul's going to win. Paul's going to win. And so they needed encouragement to get back in the race. And so Paul is calling them back to exerting maximum effort and applying themselves to the disciplines of the Christian life. For some in the church, this was much-needed correction. But here's the thing, and I've had to learn this when I came here as a young pastor, I had just turned 30, which means months earlier, I was 29 years old. Why did you guys hire me and make me an elder? 
and, and I wasn't always like this. I hope I'm more like this now. But I, I, when I, it occurred to me in the last couple of days as I was working on this, that you read Paul's language here. He is offering a little bit of correction, but Paul wasn't heavy-handed about that correction. He was gentle with them. He loved this church. He wasn't scolding them. This was gentle correction. In fact, it was so subtle that you might miss that he's correcting you. He just loved them. He knew they were on the right path. They just needed to be urged to do it all the more. And so he concludes, if anything, in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. There's his correction. <laughs> if, if you think differently than I do, uh, that's okay. I'm an apostle. You're not. I'm inspired. You're not. And uh, God, God will bring it to you. I trust the Lord with that. I'm not angry at you. I'm not upset at you. Just you, get with the program. <laughs> Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And now we're back to that beginning statement. You've been taught so well. You're in the right lane. Just stay in your lane. And you slowed your pace. Pick it up. Pick it up. I've got this uh, app on my phone, and somehow I, I, I accidentally got it set for me to walk a, a, uh, like a 13-minute like a mile. To walk a 13-minute mile, right? And uh, my wife and I were out walking one night, and the thing's in my pocket, and I, I got the speaker on, and I didn't mean to. It just had, had been on. And we walk a little ways, and we go 13 minutes in, and, or we go, uh, you know, we're about a quarter of a mile in, and this female voice comes on and says, uh, your goal is 13 minutes. You've already, you've already burned up five. Pick it up. <laughs> and my wife said, turn that off. <laughs> but this is what Paul is saying to us. It's the Apostle Paul speaking from his word. Listen, pick it up. Pick up the pace. Be serious about this. And so he concludes in verse 16 with the words, only let us hold true to that which we have attained. Again, I think the NAS is clearer here when it reads, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. The word translated hold true in the ESV or keep living in the NAS is a military term that means to line up and to follow in line. You're in your lane. This is a race. Stay in your lane. You're in the right lane. You didn't foul from the start. You got a good start. Now just stay in your lane and keep running. And the great apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had already taught these things. Remember back in verse 1 of this chapter when he says, I write to write the same things to you. It's no trouble for me, and it's a safeguard for you. We need to keep reminding ourselves of these things. How long was it ago that we went through 1 Corinthians and heard him talk about running the race to win? It's easy to forget. And Paul says, no trouble for me to repeat that. We need to hear it. This view of sanctification was already well established during the first century. And Paul's just telling him, keep it going. In Paul's day and in ours, believers are to keep disciplining themselves for the sake of godliness, the same way as ever before. There's, there's no new techniques. There's no super spirituality. There's no deeper life other than what Scripture requires. There's no silver bullet to sanctification any more than there is a silver bullet to becoming a gold medalist. You do it day in and day out. You have your routine in the morning and in the evening and whatever else. And you're pursuing him. You're pursuing him. You're praying. You're talking to him. You're growing. You're seeking wisdom. You're laying out your concerns. And so the members of Philippi were to stay in their assigned lane and keep pressing forward to the prize. No shortcuts. There's no special spiritual secrets to growing in Christ. It comes, if it comes at all, as we daily apply the means of grace to our lives. I love that phrase, means of grace. It just reminds me that as I'm applying them, uh, the, the real power to change is not me. He has me involved so that I can be a part of the process and be delighted in having a part in the process, but it's all, all of his grace, ultimately, in the end. And to that same path, the Paul, Paul is calling them to, uh, 
to stay clear. And then, and then he says, if any of you think there is another way, God's going to reveal that to you. As you work out your salvation, God will work in, in you to make you grow. Or as Paul said to the church of Corinth, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And, and I quoted that before, but here are the rest of it. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. Now here's this explanation. But I labored even more than all of them. Speaking of the other believers, the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. And, and Paul goes back to this again and again. It's I, but it's not I. I have responsibility, but in the end, it's not, it's not me, it's him. It's not my power, it's his grace. It's I, but, but not I. This is why I say sometimes, you know, we get, we get bogged down in is it one or the other. Listen, theologically speaking, church, we just need to learn to walk and chew gum at the same time. It's both. It's both. And here's another way to think about it. Our work in sanctification is completely dependent. Just like my son turning that wrench. God's work in my sanctification. Did I say salvation or sanctification? Either. <laughs> but in sanctification, what we're talking about, my work in sanctification is a dependent work. God's work is absolutely independent. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Like Paul, the Philippians were to stay in the race. They were to press on to the end and not allow anyone to divert them by any kind of teaching or philosophy that would veer them off the course. This is what has been taught from the beginning. This is what you've learned from the beginning. So stay true to what you have heard. You know, when I was growing up in New Jersey, I went to a fairly good gospel-preaching Arminian church. In fact, all the churches I went to back then were gospel-preaching Arminian churches. And you know what? Everybody taught virtually the same thing about the gospel. They got the gospel right. And a lot of what is called Christian doesn't get the gospel right. But there are different flavors of evangelical Christianity that do get the gospel right. They emphasize one thing over another, and we would disagree, perhaps, with their emphases, their ultimate emphases. But you know what? I've been taught this stuff since I was a kid. And when I became more reformed in my understanding of theology, it was like it went from black and white to color, but the roots never changed. We've known this from the beginning. And as you listen to this, I want to ask, is the Holy Spirit revealing in you any apathetic attitude in your Christian life? Is it possible that you become slack in your sanctification? Have you become undisciplined in your Bible reading and study? Have you become careless in your prayer life? Have you become half-hearted in witnessing for Christ? If you have, I bet you've also lost your joy, which is where this chapter begins, right? Rejoice. I command you to rejoice. I, I bet there's not much joy in your life. I know the more I'm pursuing Christ, coming I mean, from the heart, the more I'm pursuing Christ from the heart, whatever my circumstances, it is commensurate with my joy. My joy is commensurate with my pursuing Christ. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is calling you to repent. If you are slowing or strolling or even sitting down in the middle of the track, it's time to stand up. It's time to get up to a jog and then a, a run and get back up to the long-distance endurance race that you once were a part of. And so Paul's first word of counsel is stay true to what you've already learned and pursue it with all of your might. Secondly, follow worthy examples. We won't spend as much time on this, but a couple of things I want to point out here. If the believers in Philippi wanted to know what this kind of life looked like. They need only look to the Apostle Paul himself. He writes, verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me. But then he goes on and he says, and keep your eye on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So we're setting the example. There are others who are also doing a good job at following me. Their lives are worthy of emulation. 
Some have suggested that perhaps Paul, when he uses the word us here, he's using kind of a rhetorical plural by which he hopes to diffuse any charge of self-aggrandizement. Um, maybe. I don't think that's the case here, really. Um, I think Paul was legitimately pointing out the fact that he was not the only Christian in town who was living a godly life. There are other men who had learned from him, yes, but they were godly men. I think of Timothy. Timothy was with him. I think of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus showed up, you know, with the money, and he was sick. And then there's others. Paul traveled with Silas. Paul traveled with Barnabas. You know, find those. If you run into those guys, watch their life. They'll lead you, they'll lead you the right way. They're on the track ahead of you. Just whatever lane they're in, get in that lane and stay with it. Push as hard as they're pushing. Keep up with them. In verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, kind of describes these guys, Timothy, Epaphroditus, others. 127, here's Paul's original exhortation. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Uh, there's a statement of, or description of sanctification. If you're pursuing sanctification, you're living a life worthy of the gospel. Aphrodite was apparently like that. Timothy was like that. In fact, it was Paul who told Timothy in 1 Timothy, uh, let no one look down on your youthfulness just because you're young. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, just to name a few, be an example to all who believe. What's he saying? Get, you're on the track. Stay on the track. Run hard and understand that people will be running after you, Timothy. People are supposed to follow your lead. Be worthy of following. And there's another exhortation to us, right? Have a life that's worthy of following. You know, your kids ought to be able to look at your life and say, Mom and Dad, yeah, pick which, whichever one. Their life is worthy of emulation. I want to be, like, be like my dad in these ways. I want to be like my mom. I know there's some areas in my life that my kids don't want to be like their dad but that's okay. Maybe, maybe love for Christ. I hope they want to be like their dad and like their mom. Live a life that's worthy of emulation. As you're pursuing Christ, invite others to pursue Christ with you, behind you. Find someone who's in front of you. Beloved, this verse means nothing if it's not a call to personal discipleship. Banish from your mind the idea that the Christian life is a private thing, a relationship that consists of you and Jesus exclusively. That is patently not what God has in mind. Yes, your relationship with Christ should be intensely personal, but it, listen, should not be private. You should let people into your life. You should get into their life. I was in the hall the other night at the uh, wedding uh, rehearsal dinner, guy I didn't know, his name was Jesse, and uh, you know, I, a couple of times, I was part of the bridal party, it was a little odd for me this time to be standing here instead of here, and, uh, and, and incredibly fun, and no pressure, that was wonderful. Um, but everybody knew, uh, people had said openly that I was the pastor of the church, and when I went down the hall after dinner, I'll stand out in the hall, and, and this guy, Jesse, comes out. And we get into a, uh, just a wonderful, warm conversation. We're, we're two minutes in, and he says, so, uh, do you know the Lord? <laughs> That's a great question. He said, uh, I want your testimony. How'd you come to know Christ? He knows who I am, and he's asking anyway. And you know what I said? Bless you, brother. Nobody asks me that. Bless you. I love that kind of fellowship. And if you're a true believer, you do too. You, you love talking about the Lord. You love talking about, you even enjoy talking about the areas where you're groaning and straining and, and struggling because you know God is at work in you. Each of us ought to be actively pursuing help from others. Find someone who's further along the race as a Christian in their pursuit of Christ and, and take up the pace behind them. Listen to how that person prays and asks questions about how and why. When I, whenever I go to the FWBCA, Biblical Counseling Conference over at Birchman, you know, one of our board members, there's uh, I think six of us on the board, 
And one of them's name is George, and he lives up in North Texas. And, uh, and whenever he prays, I just want to grab him afterwards and say, can I come up to your place and spend about three days and just listen to you pray and ask questions? Uh, it's wonderful. I want to pray like him. I want to pray like that. And, and he's, it's just part of who he is. He's learned. He's grown. And I want to grow. I want to be like him because I see he's like Paul and Paul's like Christ. And watch how they read and study God's word. Pay attention. Ask questions. Observe how they share the gospel with unbelievers and, and watch them defend the faith against the assault of the cults and false teachers. Take notes and emulate their approach. Consider the fruit of the Spirit in their life. How do they express graciousness and humility and patience and love and follow those footsteps? You've got to learn all of these things to be like Christ. Another way, as I've said many times from this pulpit, is to read biographies. Biographies of men and women who have truly made a mark on the world for the glory of God. This week I read the following from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and it made me go over to my, uh, my biographies shelf. It's more than one shelf now and grab a few to show you, and I won't spend a lot of time on this, but here's Martin Lloyd-Jones. He writes, Is there anything that can be of greater practical value to the Christian who is anxious to live a truly Christian life than to follow such good examples? Is there anything that so helps us in our endeavor to attain unto the ultimate goal than to read the lives of God's saints, the biographies of good, godly men and women? Speaking for myself, he says, I can earnestly testify that I have found nothing of greater value and encouragement. You see the truth in practice. You see it translated from the realm of pure teaching and put it into operation. To me, it is one of the saddest features of the life of the church today that so often people are ignorant of the great saints of the past. And by saints, he's he's just talking about believers, mature believers. Our fathers were familiar with them and spent a lot of time reading about them. And these great biographies are still available, and they are. Surely, he says, nothing can do us greater good than to read and study them, that we may follow their example, even as the Apostle Paul exhorts us at this point. Here are some of my favorites. Every young man and every young woman, before you get engaged or even Think about it. You should read this. It's a biography. Shadow of the Almighty, written by Elizabeth Elliot. It's about her relationship with Jim Elliot. By the way, Arminian, (laughs) I love these people. They have so much to teach me and my children. Um, Anything by Elizabeth Elliot is worth reading. Uh, My favorite extra-biblical hero is David Brainerd. Uh, this is his, his um, the life and diary, and uh, it has, listen to this, it's never been out of print since 1764, I think, when Jonathan Edwards released it. Never been out of print. Uh, what does that tell you? People want to read this. Now, I, I will tell you, this is a harder read than this. If you're a minimal reader, you're going to be able to handle this easily. This is going to be a, a, a somewhat of a challenge. Some of you, some of you are, are, are only going to get three chapters in, and you're going to say, this is too hard. And some of you listening to me right now say, I'll take that challenge. <laughs> and you do it. It's not, and listen, I am not a great reader. I'm a very, very slow reader. I come from a long line of, <laughs> of slow readers. And uh, it takes a while. Fantastic. Uh, it'll, it'll move you in ways that you just you can't expect or imagine. Um, to the Golden Shore, the story of Adoniram Judson. The suffering in his life, unbelievable. And yet his pursuit of God, this book reads like a novel, like somebody made this up. It's engaging, it's easy reading, it's long, it's, it's 500 and some odd pages long. It's worth every minute. So turn off the TV and turn off the Fortnite. Some of you older folks don't know what that is. Those young voices laughing right now do. And pick up biography. And, and these were all men. Um, 
This, again, this is Elizabeth Elliot, uh, Amy Carmichael. Arminian, <laughs> right? Most of, most of, but this is just, a, this is free. Most of the, uh, the famous missionaries that you know were reformed men. Um, they, they clung to the sovereignty of God for everything. Um, Amy Carmichael was not such a person, but her story is great. And in many ways, she is worthy of imitation. And so read, beloved. Don't just watch. Read. Let God speak to your heart and change you. Now, last thing he does here, and I only have a few minutes. Last bit of counsel. So, so far, he's, he's told us to what so far? Uh, stay true to what you've learned and follow godly example. And then finally, learn from bad examples. Pay attention to the bad examples. Uh, there are some people who have just really, really blown it. And their story is important for you to know. So while it's essential to learn from men and women who are living faithfully to, for Christ... It's also instructive to take note of some who have shipwrecked their faith. Some men and women stand as a warning to us about what happens to those who compromise and eventually turn their backs on God. The Bible talks about a number of such people. We read of Cain's treachery. We read of Israel's apostasy. We read of Lot's wife, just thought of her, Turning back, we read of Achan's greed, Samson's lust, Judas's betrayal, probably also because of greed and hunger for power. All these men and women paint a vivid and instructive warning picture of what happens to people who turn their backs on God. Whenever my family and I go hiking, backpacking, um, I'm always on the lookout for warning signs. Not because I'm, I'm fearful by nature, but because I want to take pictures of them. I collect warning signs. It reminds me that God's book, especially Proverbs, is full of warnings. And it's grace to us. It's grace to us. The guardrails are grace. They're not pretty, but they're grace, they're grace to us. All these men are warnings to us. One of the things I love about the Bible is that its narratives are so realistic. This isn't pie-in-the-sky spirituality. It isn't merely a book about spiritual heroes who were blessed of God and never really did anything wrong. Rather, the narratives we find in the scriptures are just as relevant as is the evening news. One of my kids earlier this week, I just happened to walk in when they were finishing their quiet time, and they went, Dad, man... Sometimes the Bible is not exactly PG-13. I said, oh, you hit a rated R version? <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, the Bible's real. The Bible talks about relevant issues, all of the relevant issues. And time and again, we read not only of people who got it right, but people who really blew it. And perhaps the greatest example of that was Judas. You could think of others. But Judas denied the Savior. But he's only one of a myriad. He's only one of some who this very day will deny Christ. And some of them are people that you think are the godly ones. In the mid-20th century, we have an example from my dad's generation. There were two young men, very gifted preachers, both. One you will recognize, the other one, maybe, maybe not. Both ministered primarily in the United States. Both were gifted evangelists. Both became very well known. In fact, they became good friends. And the first, first one was a young man that you may have heard of, Billy Graham. And the other was a man that maybe some of you have never heard of. His name is Charles Templeton. Think the Templeton Prize for liberal religious activity. Maybe not completely, but... Together, they were affectionately known as the Gold Dust Twins. Who knows why? But it was a statement of admiration of them. And these two preachers, along with another man named Tory Johnson, founded an organization called Youth for Christ, which has multiplied all across the world into other youth-focused organizations, bringing the youth 
of the world to Jesus. An article I read this week said that by all accounts, Charles Templeton was the more gifted preacher of the Gold Dust Twins. Intelligent, handsome, winsome, eloquent, oratorical, brilliant, persuasive, effective. All of those words were used to describe him. In fact, in 1946, the National Association of Evangelicals gave him an award. The award was called Best Used of God. Now, we don't have time to talk about the dumb awards evangelicals give people. Um, for some time, however, Charles Templeton overshadowed Billy Graham. He was the better speaker. The two of them went on an evangelistic tour through Europe where they preached in England, Scotland, Ireland, Sweden, a few other places. They alternated each night as they went, preaching to large audiences. Templeton, in the 1950s, was even given an opportunity to have uh, weekly television programs on NBC and CBS where he preached the gospel, can you imagine, on TV. He preached in the United States to as many as 20,000 people a night across the country. He preached in youth rallies, again with thousands of young people. He became a church planter and a pastor. He attended Princeton Seminary. Had to be his undoing. I grew up in the Princeton area. And was an evangel he was an evangelist with the Presbyterian Church. He had a week of gospel preaching ministry at the Yale, Yale University. No one would ever have expected or imagined that there was treachery in his heart. In 1957, however, Charles Templeton declared himself an agnostic. To the shock of the world, he rejected the Bible, he rejected Christ, he connected the firmness of that rejection to his reading of none other than Thomas Paine, whose house was right down the street from mine when I was growing up and I didn't know it. Thomas Paine, who was one of the founders of the revolution and was all about the age of reason. And then he says he spent 10 days reading Voltaire Bertrand, uh, Voltaire, Bertrand Russell, Robert Ingersoll, David Hume, Alex, uh, uh, Aldous uh, Huxley, easy for me to say, and by the end of those 10 days, so he compacted them in 10 days. Now, what does that tell you? He's enamored by the world's philosophy of life. And so he left the ministry with $600 in his pocket. He returned to Canada, where he was born. He became a journalist for a while. After he became a politician after that, and almost became prime minister of Canada. So formidable was his personality and his oratory skill. In 1957, he stepped into the eternal blackness of apostasy, blaspheming Christ, and he wrote his swan song at the end of his life called Farewell to God. You know, when you think of Peter's betrayal of Christ, his denial of Christ, it ended in grief. When you think of Judas's betrayal of Jesus, it ended in grief. You think of Templeton's denial, the end of his life, the only known words in his last day on earth was, I miss Jesus. And he did miss him completely. And so we read verses 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears. I get it. I'm a pastor. I've, I've been at this church 24 years. I know what it's like to shed tears over people who just leave or deny what they have been always taught. It breaks your heart. I've often told you and now tell you even with tears. That tells me Paul knew these people. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. They're set on earthly things. That was the problem. Their mind was set on earthly things. 
What happened to Judas? He became enamored with the wealth and the power of the world. What happened to Charles Templeton? He became enamored with the philosophies of the world. And that's what happened to the men that Paul was writing about. He became enamored with some aspect, some worldly treasure that could not compare to the treasure of knowing Christ. And so Paul's tacit warning here is be careful. Be careful about who you admire. Be careful about what you admire. Be careful of who you idolize. If you're a child of God, your role models should not be Christ-rejecting people. No matter how engaging their books, no matter how wonderful their music or how amazing they are, throwing, catching, hitting, or running with a pigskin or something else. You are in a race for the ultimate prize. And you are there because God, in his grace, put you in the race. You were chosen. And you were put there by his grace. And so run. Run. You got off to a good start. Maybe you've slowed down. Maybe you've slacked up. Maybe your joy is diminished. Run in such a way that you may win. Run with others. Run behind somebody. Go to somebody you know is further down the road than you and say, Would you, can I run behind you? Can we just meet once in a while? Can, can I just see your life? Can I come over to your house and watch you do children and wife and whatever? Dog. <laughs> Godly man takes care of his beast, right? Don't allow anything to distract you from that end anything that would lead you astray. Beloved, the race for the prize is never easy. Nobody ever said it would be. But God's instructions, Paul's instructions, will equip you to win. If you're listening to my voice right now, whether you're in this room or in that big group down the hall, are you running the race? If you're not, and you would identify yourself as maybe a seeker, maybe, maybe you've been a, a God rejecter and you're not even sure why you're here. You just, somebody said, be here, and here you are. I, I would just say to you, it may have been your friend who said you should come, but God is the one who's brought you. And I would say to you, what you need to hear today is, is something that Maybe you've already heard and you already know, namely that there is a God and you are accountable to him. Deny that all you want. It doesn't change the reality. You can deny gravity, but you jump off a building and the result is disastrous. You know there is a God. God put it in your heart. The reason you're rejecting him is because you love your sin. That's the truth. There is a God, and you are accountable to him. Now, that's the bad news. If you love your precious sin and are unwilling to repent, it's really bad. But the good news is that all of your guilt and all of your sin has been paid for by the very God before whom you will one day stand. You can be forgiven. You can be rescued from the wrath you deserve. And so I plead with you. Come to him and bring your sin with you. And tell him that you surrender. Tell him that all you have to offer him is your sin and, and would you take it? Tell him that all you have to offer is your, your rebellion and your self-orientation. Tell him that you believe that your only hope in this life and in the next is his undeserved mercy and kindness and grace, and pardon. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, I preach to the church this morning, and I pray if there's anyone who is outside of your family listening today, that they will repent and believe, that they would trust in the righteousness of Christ alone. They would trust in the penalty Jesus paid on their behalf alone.
and none of their own righteousness or self-atonement. Would you save them, Father, as you have saved us? Would you save them by your grace and for your glory? We praise you for all of these things, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.